The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I bring an old friend into the studio. His name is Jesse Eisinger. He has worked pretty much everywhere in the world of financial journalism. If you are at all curious as to why, during the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, effectively nobody was sent to jail, at least nobody of any importance, a couple of burger flippers uh, who were hired to fabricate mortgage documents uh, were, were threatened with prosecution. A handful of mid-level uh, traders, the fabulous Fab, got uh, finger-wagged at him and paid a fine. But all of the people responsible for an epic collapse in, in the financial uh, markets and the credit markets uh, escaped unscathed. If you're curious as to how that came about, then you need to hear Jesse Eisinger's story. He is a very thoughtful uh, investigative journalist, has won numerous prizes, including the Pulitzer. Uh, I don't find a whole lot to disagree with in his new book, whose title I cannot say on the radio, uh, but I can say in the podcast, so you get to hear me uh, cuss there. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Jesse Eisinger. My special guest this week is Jesse Eisinger. He is currently a reporter for ProPublica. He began his career at the South Pacific Mail in Santiago, Chile, spent years at the Wall Street Journal, where he helped to create the Ahead of the Tape column and the Long and Short column. I originally know him from his work at TheStreet.com. He has written for The New York Times Deal Book, The New Yorker, The Atlantic. He was the Wall Street editor at Condé Nast. In 2015, he won the Loeb Award. And he, in 2011, he won the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting on Questionable Wall Street Practices. It was notable because it was the first ever Pulitzer given for online journalism. He is also the author of a book whose name I actually can't say on the air, but we'll give <laughs> it a try. we'll give it a loose. Uh, I'll leave uh, one word out, and it's called the Chicken Club: Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse Eisinger, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. I know Jesse for a long time. I'm a fan of his work, and there's so many fascinating things in this book, which is written pretty much in the sweet spot of the world I inhabit, finance, legal, and bad behavior. Those three <laughs> Venn diagrams overlap, and this is the book that's the result of it. Let's begin where the book pretty much starts out uh, with Enron and Arthur Anderson. How significant were those two companies 
to the future lack of prosecution by the SEC and the Justice Department. They were crucial, uh, is what my argument is. And, you know, so I started this book with this puzzle. Why don't we prosecute top corporate executives anymore? And I think it goes beyond just the financial crisis. Of course, we all know that no top bankers were put in prison for the financial crisis. But I think it started beforehand, this problem at the Justice Department. And it persists to today. And it goes beyond the banks to industrial companies, retailers, tech companies, pharmaceuticals. Um, And so I was trying to figure out this puzzle. And I started with Enron because if you remember, and of course you do, we were talking at the time, um, in after the bubble burst, the NASDAQ bubble burst, uh, there were a wave of prosecutions, not just Enron, but WorldCom, Adelphia, Tyco, uh, Global Crossing. Lots of executives did Lots some time in the Gray Bar hard, Hotel. Uh, exactly. Hard time uh, in the pokey. And so what changed? And really, I locate this as the, be- the backlash and the problem started then in the kind of lobbying effort, a corporate and white-collar defense bar lobbying effort against what they saw as overly zealous prosecutions of Enron and particularly Arthur Anderson. They were lobbying Congress. They were lobbying the Bar Association. They were lobbying the Judges Association. They pretty much were pulling every lever of power, the defense bar I'm referring to, that was possible. Exactly. And what they were arguing was that the prosecutors were overly aggressive, that they had um, overcharged the executives, uh, particularly of Enron, and I focus on Enron, um, and then Arthur Anderson, which was the kind of seminal corporate prosecution. So let's talk about Anderson a little bit, because I find people have consistently mischaracterized that period. Let me ask you, what killed Arthur Anderson? Arthur Anderson killed Arthur Anderson, um, and we should be very clear about that. And um, one of the big goals that I have in the book is to rehabilitate the prosecution of Arthur Anderson, because occasionally you do have to prosecute companies and put them out of business when they are rife with uh, fraud, when they are serial uh, abusers of the laws, the corporate laws, as Anderson was. Uh, Now, what happened with Anderson is that they— they destroyed documents in the Enron. Well, back up before we before we get to that. Yeah, they had gone through a series of snafus where, as auditors, they did a terrible job. Companies in their charge got away with lots of exactly. fraud, and they engaged in all these cons- consent decrees where they said, "Okay, you caught us. We promise to do better. This time, we mean it. We're really not going to do much more fraud." And then, as soon as Enron went down, they began this aggressive policy of, hey, we haven't been subpoenaed yet, shred everything. Exactly. And as uh, Michael Chertoff, who was the head of the criminal division at the time, says in my book, this wasn't an ice cream company that was destroying documents. This was a company that was uh, part of its business was legal advice for investigations. Uh, and so and arguably preserving documents. And, right. And that means not destroying documents and not destroying evidence. What um, They went on an orgy of tons and tons of document destruction. And but, email destruction and, as well. And not email, just paper. Uh, multiple cities, not just one person. <laughs> um, so this was a kind of system-wide thing. But, but to in the lead up to the crash, the NASDAQ crash, there was a pandemic of accounting uh, malfeasance at in corporate America. And 
chances are all the all the big auditors at the time were guilty but chances were if you were one of the bigger accounting frauds of the era you were being audited by Arthur Anderson and and to put a little flesh on that people always blame the indictment but weeks before the indictment lots of but post Enron bankruptcy lots of big clients were fleeing Arthur Anderson and then two weeks after the indictment WorldCom goes belly up more accounting fraud, and guess who their auditor was? Exactly. Just like Enron, Arthur Anderson was the auditor for WorldCom. For Worldcom. And so I argue that Anderson was going down. And not only that, I argue that the partners wanted it to go down, wanted it to unwind. Now, this wasn't a corporation. It wasn't publicly traded. It was a partnership. And to avoid the liability from all the lawsuits, they literally had dozens and dozens, maybe over 100 lawsuits that they were facing, and they were going to face more with Arthur, uh, with WorldCom, um, you know, that was, it was a convenient excuse to say that the indictment caused the uh, failure of the company. Of course, it didn't help, um, but, uh, <laughs> but you know what? Uh, my argument is that sometimes prosecutors can't worry about that, uh, that their jobs are to do justice. Their jobs are not to cushion the blow for failing companies. You write in the book... Today's Justice Department has lost the will and indeed the ability to go after the highest ranking corporate wrongdoers. Discuss. Well, so it's been building since the backlash to Arthur Anderson. And what I argue now is that after Anderson, they turned to corporate settlements. Uh, and in doing corporate settlements, deferred prosecution agreements, non-prosecution agreements. Now, the- stop, let me stop you right there. Deferred prosecution agreement is, here's the deal. We're going to have you sign these documentations. And we're not going to throw the case out, but we're going to hold it in abeyance. And if you could be good little boys for a year... A year from now, we'll we'll toss this out. Exactly, X number of years. We're going to uh, we we've indicted you, and we can prove it in a court of law. They say, <laughs> but we're just going to put this aside for now and uh, try not to do anything again. Now um, there. Many problems with this. One is that there's no enforcement mechanism. Nobody really looks at it. Sometimes they install corporate monitors. That's a problem. A problematic solution. Why, An- why is that problematic? Well. It's problematic because this has become a giant racket for big law. Um, And big law both likes the settlements. That provides a lot of work for them to um, investigate the corporations. Big law firms like Paul Weiss, Debevoise, Covington & Burling do these investigations for these companies, for their Mm -hmm. corporate clients, um, and then they deliver the results to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice essentially reviews it without really looking at um, conducting the investigation in and of itself. You're saying the DOJ outsources the investigation to the defendant's lawyers. The dirty secret of American corporate jurisprudence is that we have privatized and outsourced corporate criminal investigation. That's astonishing. And not only have we done it, we have privatized and outsourced it to the criminals themselves <laughs> to conduct investigations of themselves. Alleged criminals. Alleged criminals. <laughs> they hire their own attorneys. Their own attorneys conduct their investigations. These private law firms then deliver the results to the Department of Justice, which reviews them, and it gets worse because <laughs> the prosecutors who are reviewing them are tend to be people who are 
job candidates for the very a, law firms that I was about are conducting to, the investigation. About to ask you, didn't we see after you know the early two thousands? These lifer prosecutors who had been in DOJ and SEC and the Second Circuit, they all end up going uh, when when the depart. To be fair, the departments are changing, and it's no longer the job they loved. But they set a path, and they end up working at these big firms, are very well compensated, and uh, that now that path is well trod. Uh, from from the prosecution exactly the most prestigious offices in the Department of Justice the Southern District of New York which does most of the Wall Street prosecutions and many corporate prosecutions and Maine Justice down in DC um, those are now effectively like post uh, juris doctoral uh, um, let me try that again. those are essentially post doc um, employment for Lawyers who are training to become white collar defense work wasn't um, always that not, way. It is never. It has not always been that way. In fact, in the 1960s, uh, it wasn't that way at all. Uh, these p- prosecutors did not go to these white shoe firms. White shoe firms didn't really have this big corporate criminal investigation they look, business. They looked down on criminal defense, even. White collar criminal defense. Exactly, and so they some of them went into kind of transactional work, um, which was very different. Um, white collar criminal defense was conducted by boutiques. The Department of Justice focused on individuals, not on corporates, mm-hmm. uh, not on corporations. Um, and so there's been a complete transformation. And what I argue in the book is that big laws approach to how it defends corporations has developed alongside and in symbiosis with the Department of Justice's way that it approaches corporate prosecutions, investigations and prosecutions, and they've all sort of influenced each other. And there's been this cross-pollination, and then they go back and forth Mm -hmm. from the government to the private sector and back to the government and back to the private sector again. And now it's almost like, you know, that line uh, at the end of Animal Farm where you could no longer tell who the government people are and who the defense people are, who the pigs are on the one side and who the pigs are on the other side. And it's a it's a deeply, profoundly troubling and corrupt system when it allows corporate malefactors, individuals, to get off. So you, you describe in the book how the uh, Department of Justice loses the ability to prosecute criminal litigation against corporate wrongdoers. Explain that. So what happens is they find that these settlements are much easier to reach mm-hmm. because they the company has to come to the table and negotiate. Right. The company says, well, we're just being extorted. We, we have to pay a fine because um, the cloud of a government investigation is so great, we must resolve this. The prosecutor, that works. And, you know, there's some validity to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prosecutor... Uh, then says, well, we're going to fine you an enormous amount of money. What the prosecutors don't really do anymore is look at individuals. And the point of the Enron investigation, the point of starting the book with the Enron narrative, is that they put enormous amount of resources. They devoted an entire team to do that one prosecution individually. The Enron task force. The Enron task force. And they essentially locked them in a room and made them study the company from the bottom up and start indicting lower-level people to get to the top, just the way you do with a mob family. Um, You have to roll the soldiers to get to the capos. Um, That art 
has really been lost over the last 15 years. And the Department of Justice just does not do that anymore. They essentially stop at the middle. When they prosecute individuals, and occasionally they do at a big bank, they're essentially stopping at the trader who is responsible. Sometimes they do a low-level trader. Sometimes they do his or her boss. But they rarely get higher to the executive level. You were at the Journal for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, almost seven years. You, and in fact, you helped to create the Ahead of the Tape column, which just ended, what is that, like a 15-year run? Yes, I was really sad to see Me it too. go, a daily column. That was a, You went from daily to the, uh, long and short, was a weekly. I have written every column uh, known to man. I've written a daily, I've written a weekly. three times a week, I've right. written a weekly. Then and you I've went to monthly, monthly at Portfolio. <laughs> if I do one, it's a decade. Then, then you moved to, to ProPublica, where it's quarterly, Yeah. and now the book is out after a year, so it's annual, Exactly. and soon soon there'll be a decile publication <laughs> I'm trying schedule. to convince my editor right. to let me that, write that once won't a happen. decade. So, so I, I often ask authors, hey, what's the inspiration behind the book? But with you... I know what the inspiration is, because the lack of prosecution has been infuriating to all of us, either on Wall Street, in finance, in journalism. What was the last straw that made you say, I really have to write a book about this? Well, you know, uh, we wrote about CDOs and the magnetar trade, mm -hmm. betting against CDOs for your own uh, account. A well-received um, series uh, that right, that's led the, to the series Pulitzer. that won the Pulitzer, um, which we were really grateful and lucky for. And um, uh, after that, w my colleagues and I sat around expecting to see some criminal investigation, and oh. nothing happened. And then we watched that nothing happened with Lehman Brothers or AIG or Bank of America or City. you know, nothing. Go down the list. Right. Um, and, you know, countrywide. And it was utterly baffling and an enormous scandal. And, and so this has been plaguing me since then, and, obsessively. And me. the economy and our entire body politic. Yeah, I think so. I think it contributed to Trump. It certainly contributed to the rise of the two most potent movements on the left and the right, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, uh, I think it, it undergirds the anger of Trump and it undermined Hillary Clinton and Obama because I, I think people mistrusted them because they thought they were in the pocket of Wall Street uh, for this reason it, as paramount. So I thought it was one of the great scandals of our time, and I thought it really deserved some kind of serious accounting that uh, tried to get at the deep fundamental and corrosive aspects um, in society. This is not an easy problem, and it's not an easy solution. And there's not, it's not a conspiracy. You know, Tim Geithner did not call up Eric Holder and say, lay off. It's something more troubling because it's something more pernicious and, and more fundamental. So I have not, not so much a conspiracy, but I have argued that the the greatest innovation uh, of Wall Street has not been the ATM or or securitization, but that it's been convincing the Department of Justice and the SEC that if you prosecute us, the entire economy is coming down. Right. All right. So, how? First of all, I have yet to find anything that demonstrates that that's wrong. And second, how, you're you're really saying that it's much more systemic than that moment. This is something that's taken place over a long arc of time. You know, we saw it in the financial crisis most prominently. Um, that's when it became... Oh 
clear that this was a big problem, but it really was building before then. There was no prosecution of the back stock option backdating scandal, you know, which was huge, job, and which was huge, tremendous and paper trail should have been easy to prosecute, it should have been much easier to prosecute than it was, which raises a question of whether the skill set is there, whether the will is there, whether they devote enough resources to it. And I don't think uh, the answer is yes to any of those questions. And the um, uh, but you know it wasn't. It's not just the banks. That was a wonderful innovation that the banks said were too big to, to jail, uh, too big to fail, and too big to jail. But you're seeing this with recidivist pharmaceutical companies. Right. Pfizer has had has, um, a subsidiary plead guilty to one problem. It has had uh, a That's DPA. A it has an NP, NBA. There's a on and on and on. You see Walmart getting away with bribery in Mexico. That uh, the New York Times had them dead to rights with all the internal documents. Um, we are seeing this across the economy. And um, so this is impunity at the highest level of corporate America. What they do instead is prosecute CEOs of smaller companies mm-hmm. or the head of a hedge fund. Raj Rajaratnam can be prosecuted because he's committed a crime that the prosecutors are comfortable prosecuting insider trading. It's an easy thing to sell mm-hmm. to a jury. And when um, Galleon goes out of business, it only puts five or six or 10 or 20 people out of business. It's not putting the entire uh, tens of thousands of people out of work, and they're terrified. My special guest today is Jesse Isinger. He has written for such August publications as The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New Yorker, The New York Times, etc., etc. He is currently the author of a book whose title I cannot say, but we can at least talk about where the the title came from so the actual title is the chicken blank club the justice department and the failure to prosecute white collar criminal blank being a a (laughs) word that george carlin would appreciate as one of the seven words you can't say on tv tell us about the derivation of the title sure my children love the title which makes my wife really not like the title (laughs) um so but uh and i'm so glad that simon and schuster uh uh, went with it. Um, I think they went with it because it is actually organic. It is a real statement that came from, of all people, Jim Comey, who uh, you may remember from such things as the testifying in front of the Senate after being fired for being FBI director. But 15 years ago, he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and he had just replaced Mary Jo White, and Mary Jo White was a legend. Mm -hmm. Um, And he comes in, and he gathers everybody together, and uh, they're a little trepidatious about him, Um, and he gathers all the criminal prosecutors, and these guys, you have to understand, are the best of the best of the best. They've gone to the best high schools to go to the best colleges to get into the best law schools to perform the best, to get to the best clerkships, and then they go to the Southern District. These are talented and brilliant people. Um, And they all think of themselves as talented (laughs) and brilliant people. Um, And so he gathers them all and he says, how many of you have never lost a case? And a bunch of hands shoot out very proudly. They, you know, chests puff out. And he says, so me and my buddies have a name for you. You guys are the chicken expletive club. 
and the hands go back down, and uh, they're sort of sheepish. Meaning, but, if meaning you're, there's a point here, exactly. And the point was, you guys aren't taking ambitious enough cases. If, if you never lose, it means you're only taking easy cases. Exactly. You're taking the low-hanging fruit, and that's not justice. You're trying to protect a record. But being a prosecutor for the government is not about protecting a record. It's not about going win, um, you know, uh, going undefeated. Ten and zero, right? It. It is about doing justice, and sometimes doing justice means that you take a hard case and present your evidence to a jury, and then juries are unpredictable. And sometimes they go with you, and sometimes they don't, but justice has been served. That's a really insightful position from someone who's the head of a department of of prosecutors. Like, we don't really know a lot about Comey other than the recent— News flow, which has been insane. Right. In other words, he's a principled guy who's telling them, hey, the hell with your record. You have to do justice. Comey is principled. I, I agree. I mean, he's got, um, he's imperfect. I say I have another episode where he really blinks on a corporate prosecution in the mm-hmm. book about KPMG. Um, and, uh, you know, he is uh, a guy who thinks a great deal of himself. Um but it is ve- it's a very important concept, and you don't see leaders of these organizations um, without a fear of losing. They're terrified of losing, and they're terrified of the humiliation of losing a trial. And you saw that with Preet Bharara, who has a great reputation mm-hmm. as a crusader, especially as the supposed sheriff of Wall Street, but in fact, I think, blinked on investigations and prosecutions of Wall Street banks. And didn't so, want to take the chance he might lose and, and damage his Didn't his want to take average. the difficult course of doing the tough investigations Mm -hmm. and then didn't want to lose his pristine record and take on, for instance, Stevie Cohen at SAC Capital, didn't didn't want to take him to trial because he was worried he might lose and that would destroy his That was a tough case also. It was a tough case, but at some point, I think justice justice requires that you take Stevie Cohen to trial. And the hard cases, you know, you take somebody like Stevie Cohen to trial, you present the evidence in public, you present the evidence to the jury, and if the jury disagrees with you, it's not necessarily humiliation. You have been exonerated. And um, that is is a, a... bad day at the office but it should not be the overarching goal of the government should not be to win the um uh, at the very least there's a failure to supervise case although that's more civil than criminal if you're talking about uh sack capital well just look at what's happened now is they pay a big fine Mm -hmm. and stevie Cohn continues to operate and then you know he's soon going to be back in the hedge fund business what kind of message does this send to him to any of his employees to any other wrongdoer anybody contemplating a life of crime on wall street of which there are way too many um you know it sends a terrible message so you reference kpmg let's talk about that because i find that to be a fascinating judicial decision a fascinating case first tell us a little bit about what was going on with kpmg that it led to a prosecution right so soon after this arthur anderson case as we were talking about uh there's an investigation at the southern district of new york into kpmg and this was another major auditor and they were selling illegal tax shelters 
to wealthy individuals to uh, help them avoid taxes. Huge. Um, IRS is the people who refer this to. IRS uh, refers to refers it. There's huge a big, track record. Um, yeah, there's a big Senate investigation from Carl Levin's group, bipartisan, exposing enormous amount of um, re- deeply questionable dealings. This should have been. This should have been a relatively easy prosecution. Well, well complicated. It's, it's but- complicated tax stuff. But um, a really serious amount, billions and billions of dollars in alleged fraud Mm -hmm. here, Um, and lots and lots of paper trail and named partners, named individuals. And the Southern District names over a dozen individuals, mostly KPMG executives. Um, And then what happens is KPMG cuts off their um, paying for their defense. At, now, that wasn't sua sponte. That was at the urging. Well, it's incredibly controversial. Mm-hmm. And um, what later happens, to cut a long story short, is that the federal judge in the overseeing the case determines that the prosecutors, the government, has forced KPMG to cut off the funding for their these executives' defense. And he throws out the cases against all the individual executives. And he essentially creates out of whole cloth a new constitutional right, the right to have the best attorney <laughs> um, money can buy. If you can afford it, or rather, if your company can afford it, then you are allowed to have um, the uh, the most expensive attorney in the land. Now, now, it just goes without saying that street criminals and public defenders don't have this right. Well, hold, hold that thought a second. So this is Judge Kaplan in the Eastern District or the Southern District? Is that Southern right? District. Still sitting? Yeah, still sitting. As is Rakoff and a couple of other judges who were referenced in the book. Right. Uh, giants of of securities litigation and, and all sorts of uh, Rakoff, certainly. Right. And, and Kaplan himself is well regarded, uh, a um, Democratic appointee, mm-hmm. um, uh, but came from the world of corporate law. But, but here's the, the thing that's so fascinating, and you were alleging that. There is no right to a near infinite set of resources to hire the most expensive attorneys in the land, even if you're a corporate executive, even if you've been paid millions of dollars in salary and stock options. Why would anyone imagine that you have the right to the most expensive counsel in the world? In the book, you show examples that are insane how criminals, how blue-collar criminals, are routinely denied the right to counsel, including a lawyer arrested for Dewey on the way to trial. (laughs) And the court said, no, he's he's fine. There was no ineffective assistance counsel just because he's arrested. But uh, that was just the most egregious. But there are hundreds of examples of non-white-collar criminals who are really prevented the right to a a lawyer, and the Supreme Court seems okay with it. Yeah, this is an undercurrent is just the terrible double standard here between street criminals and white-collar criminals in in American jurisprudence. Um, But... The, you know, even if you argue that it is, uh, it does not sit well with us for an employer to cut off the legal defense for wrongdoing, especially in the course of doing your job as a journalist, I want ProPublica to pay for my legal defense sure. if I'm accused of libel. Um, even if we think that that was um, uh, questionable and debatable, and I go back and forth on the, the actual merits of the case, one thing is I don't think that the 
cases needed to be thrown out. I think the prosecutions mm-hmm. could have gone forward against the Clearly. executives. The second thing is that it had had an enormous effect on these guys, the prosecutors' reluctance to charge individuals. So you have Anderson, where they don't want to indict um, any companies. Mm -hmm. Then you have KPMG, where after that, they're very reluctant to prosecute top executives. So what are they left with? It's settlements. And these companies get away with paying, writing a check and um, wiping the slate clean. To be fair, you can't really expect a sitting judge to understand the concept of judicial precedent when issuing a decision. <laughs> I mean, he would actually have to be, oh wait, he was a sitting judge. Isn't that he what was, they do? Isn't that what case law I mean, is? He, he was very proud. He had his wife come to that to watch, uh, to watch when he read the ruling. I mean, this is one of his, what he views as one of his crowning achievements. We have been speaking with Jesse Isinger. He is the author of the new book, the let's call it The Chicken Club, about the Justice Department's failure to prosecute white-collar criminals. Check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast. Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this. I have too, Barry. This has been great. I got like 80 pages left in the book. I was plowing through it the past week. Thank you. And, and there are there are things in it that are just infuriating. Good. Infuriating. Good. I don't know if that was your, your purpose. Absolutely. The, My intent the, is to uh, make people outraged. The, the assistance of counsel stuff is just insane. The It's more than a double standard. It's if you're poor and probably of color or lower income, lower economic strata, hey, you should have thought about that before you committed the crime. You don't have a lawyer? (laughs) Got to plan ahead. But if you're wealthy, if you're a white-collar criminal, well, you planned ahead and you worked for a big company, and they could certainly pay for your your, uh, lawyer no matter what it costs. That's what the Constitution guarantees. Not only that, but the courtesy afforded these lawyers. So what happens is you get, um, if you're the subject of an investigation, the target of an investigation, you never see a prosecutor. You, um, They bring your lawyer in for a polite series of conversations about what their evidence is, what your defense might be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an enormous number of uh, fights over what you have to produce in discovery. The public never sees any of this. Um, you are treated with the utmost grace and respect and politesse. Um, suffice it to say, street criminals don't quite get now, this. Now, didn't people like Spitzer and Giuliani start the frog march? They would walk into a place, yeah. blue jackets with the windbreakers with FBI or DEA or whatever on the back, and they would grab whoever, put him in handcuffs, and march him out 
Uh, with Oh, what a coincidence. There's all the media waiting with TV and, and games. Yeah, so occasionally you get a prosecutor with um, ambitions not to go into big white shoe firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, uh, you know, they wreak havoc. Um, and they kind of do their jobs. I think Giuliani, after uh, you know, before being a kind of um, overly uh, cruel and not particularly competent mayor, uh, was um, was an aggressive prosecutor. But there was an enormous backlash after him. Mm-hmm. Um, the courts then, uh, oddly enough, kind of take it on themselves. They see their role as to correct overly zealous sure. prosecutors, um, not in street criminals where they're often affirming them, but in corporate arena in white collar criminals. They they really can kind of get their backs up. Exactly. And you so know, it's it's you don't relate to the crackhead. You don't relate to the guy stealing. Whatever, 10 bucks if you're a judge who's gone to college, law school, and you live in suburbia. I mean, there is a lot of elite affinity, I think, um, that kind of undergirds both the prosecutions. The prosecutors are from the same schools, Mm -hmm. and when they're prosecuting these people, they're either prosecuting their their peers or their parents of their peers, and the parents of their peers are being defended by their boss's former boss. Um, This is just this whole milieu that they're in. The judges come from it. it. We talked about Lewis Kaplan in the Southern District earlier he was a paul weiss partner right um and so you know when he says uh, he's looking at um the prosecutors cutting off the uh defense funding from top law firms and top lawyers that's paul firms. weiss yeah he thinks like you guys this is just not done or <laughs> i don't know what he's thinking but it, you know this it's you can read into that this is improper you, this is uh, we do not do this in this country you use the example of bill bennett who was came out of was it the Bush or the Reagan White House? Bob Bennett, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Bennett, the um, who uh, brother is, to William um, Bennett, who was uh, the uh, he is um, uh, you know he's President Clinton's personal lawyer, mm-hmm. um, and he negotiates on behalf of KPMG. Mm-hmm. They get a power lawyer, and he's incredibly savvy. And he's um, not just a courtroom litigator; he's a guy in the halls of power. In the White House, in Congress, he is there mixing it up oh, with yeah. oh, with the head of the Appropriations Committee, who calls the Justice Department and says, "We're having a little bit of problem funding your agency." <laughs> exactly, and what he what he does is that's when, not an exaggeration. When the Southern District, well, when the Southern District is prosecuting KPMG, they keep issuing ultimatums to him, and he keeps saying, "Okay, okay." And what what he's really doing is he's gone right to the top of the Bush administration. Uh, Department of Justice, right to the Attorney General, and right to the Deputy Attorney General, who by this time is none other than Jim Comey. Mm-hmm. And Jim Comey calls down to the calls up to the Southern District U.S. Attorney at the time and says, "You guys have to. You can't indict KPMG. You have to post keep, Arthur Anderson. Try to post Arthur Anderson. Um, you know, and it's unsaid that we don't want this. It's unsaid that we uh, are worried about what uh, having another Anderson on our. Did he hands. say uh, you have to lay off this Russia investigation? Today? Is that a se- <laughs> effectively what he said? Lift to the them? cloud. Um, no, he's found a spine uh, in Since. this administration. <laughs> exactly. When it comes to that kind of thing, they do better than uh, corporate prosecutions. I gotta say. Really? Um, well, you know. I think that this elite affinity does not plague them when it comes to corrupt politicians. They look at somebody like 
Look at Preet, Preet Bharara when he looks at Sheldon Silver or Dean Skelos, these mm-hmm. top New York State politicians. He sees them as scummy. They're dirty as, to him, yeah. and, and um, they weren't afraid to go. They after didn't him. go, you know. And I think it helps that you know that it outrages them. I think that these people are moral, um, but it uh, you know that they didn't go to the same schools and they didn't aren't at the same law firms. You know, uh, Sheldon Silver was a kind of two bit. Uh, plaintiff's lawyer. And so um, they have a very different attitude to those people than they do to a Lloyd Blankfein or a Jamie Dimon, um, or they treat them with much greater respect. And to be fair, Lloyd Blankfein and Jamie Dimon have not been accused of any undoing, any... Uh, Wrongdoing, yeah, wrong. exactly. I'm just saying that they, but CEOs generally. in this country get the kind of respectful treatment. Steve Jobs got enormously respectful treatment. Despite the option the, back then. Despite the stock option backdating, but despite um, it being dead to rights on a uh, a collusion over uh, engineer salaries, right, if you remember right. that scandal. Sure. Google, things Apple, that, everybody. Things that people have gone to prison for. Um, and that's a recent development only in the past 10, 15 years? Well, so there's a- never been a golden age where the rich and powerful really had to fear for their liberty if they stepped over the line. <laughs> but I, as I say in the book, there have been silver ages. There have been better periods. Right. So we had Morgenthau in the 60s um, and Bob Fisk in the 70s do, focusing on individuals, taking on high-level corporations. Um, and then we had Giuliani. We had the Enron WorldCom, uh, Adelphia prosecutions. Now we are in a terrible crisis. So if you if you want to commit widespread fraud, don't be a Bernie Madoff, don't open a small hedge fund, run a big bank, run a big comp- big corporation run a big and you're pretty much bulletproof. Um run a big corporation, surround yourself with um, compliance lawyers, officers, accounts. lawyers. Um, don't ask too many questions about a division that is making too much money. Um, uh, be studiously incurious. Um, studiously uh, incurious. Yeah, that's a that's a title to the book that we can actually say <laughs> on the radio. There you go. Studi- studiously incurious. And the then CEO when you problem want, in America. When you want to investigate um, the wrongdoing at your company, hire a firm that is also a law firm that is also. Incurious enough not to ask uh, questions of things that will lead the the investigation to the C suite or the boardroom. So you reference in the book the ability of accountant firms and law firms to provide cover for what's pretty obvious frauds and pretty obvious um, studious incuriosity. How significant are those? organizations to the institutionalization of fraud. Well, we talked about it earlier that um, the law firms are key to this now Mm -hmm. because they conduct the internal investigations and the prosecutors don't do it, especially if it's something like overseas wrongdoing. Um, The Department of Justice thinks that it cannot prosecute um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act bribery uh, abroad. Which is because astonishing. They can't, what, um, it's they, the it's law. Not that they, it's not that they can't prosecute it. It's that they can't investigate it. Um, and so they outsource the investigations to companies. And they say, "What you know? just think of the resources that we would need to do that. And my answer is, if you don't have the resources to sufficiently prosecute something, focus on the things that you can prosecute mm-hmm. or get the resources. It's not an excuse to just say, our jobs are hard or we don't have the money we don't i mean what do we got what do we got a doj for right that's exactly right it's you know one of the things that i was thinking about when i was reading the book 
was it wasn't just the lawyers, it was the accountants. And one of the parallel developments over the lack of accountability for corporate executives, including accountants, lawyers, auditors, et cetera, I don't think it's a coincidence that as there's been less prosecutions of wrongdoing and the accounting rules have gotten squishier and squishier with uh, who can really rely on, on corporate statements anymore, simultaneous to the huge rise of indexing, that people mm. have kind of reached the conclusion, hey, listen, I can't tell what earnings legitimately are. How can I be a value investor if these are all nonsense? So I might as well just buy the whole market and hope for the best. Yeah, I think that's true. And I... Um uh, if you look at the AIG investigation, and I go through a series of AIG wrongdoings and investigations in the book, um, the last one where they blew up on the CDS market and the, the mortgage market um, sort of pivots on a very arcane little handwritten note in the margins from the auditors at PwC. And the higher ups at the Department of Justice are so shaken by the existence of this note that seems to suggest that PwC partners had some knowledge of this, mm -hmm. that they put the kibosh on the whole indictment, uh, the whole investigation. So that it's So killed. in other words, we found indicia that senior people knew about this. We better not right. investigate. It, yeah, exactly. Instead of saying, my God, if the PWC people knew about this, maybe uh, maybe things were worse. Maybe we need to go higher up. Maybe we need to prosecute more. Maybe we need to put a lot of pressure on the auditors. What the innovation in the 70s from the Southern District and from the SEC, um, and I cover this in the book, Stanley Sporkin, sort of the mm -hmm. father of enforcement um, at the SEC, they put pressure on the auditors and the lawyers. Right. They put pressure on the enablers. Um, he calls them the gatekeepers. Um, and the problem is that we don't do that anymore. We don't put pressure on the lawyers, and we don't put pressure on the lawyers and the auditors to a lesser extent, but the lawyers especially. Um, one of the big problems is that these guys want to go become corporate lawyers and make two, five, eight million dollars a year. Revolving door. Uh, so the revolving door is this perennially corrosive um, aspect of this whole thing. Before I get to my favorite questions, I have to at least during the podcast make reference to the actual title of the book. And uh, hopefully, hopefully this will make through unbleeped. This is by the way, published by Simon and Schuster coming out July eleventh. July eleventh, yeah. The Chicken Shit Club: The Justice Department and the Failure to Prosecute White Collar Criminals. And the phrase "Chicken Shit Club" comes from the speech by Jim Comey. That's pretty much how you manage to get Simon and Schuster to exactly. let the name sneak by. Exactly. That that's astonishing. What was that? What was? By the way, I have this fantasy about the Big Short. Yeah. There's a line in, in it from, I forgot who uh, in the book says the line, um, but the line is, F the poor. <laughs> and I just have this picture of Michael Lewis arguing, no, 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 the big short is the subtitle, F the poor is the name <laughs> of the book. And it's a quote, because this guy said it, and it, obviously it, that doesn't happen. But um, The S word seems less offensive than the F word these mm -hmm. days. Uh, For sure. Yeah, yeah. So what was the pushback like? And by the way, everything I just said, I'm sure we'll get it. <laughs> but what was the pushback like 
to the name, even you though know it was what? a... You uh, I kept waiting for it, and it, it never materialized. I think really? Simon & Schuster... You know, uh, I adults. think the book... They're adults. Uh, also, the book business is tough these days, and you got to get people's attention it's, somehow. It's, it's um, click-worthy. It's a little buzz. Exactly. Click buzz. Yeah, so, you know, uh, my wife sort of feels like it's a little crude. Uh, she'd it like is. something a little bit more refined. Um, I felt like, look, this is... This is really encapsulates it and it also is it, you know i couldn't come up with it on my own it came from right. jim comey he really said it um, and you so get lucky organic. suddenly he's in the news and talk about for, I, good uh, fortune you know i really uh, was worried when his reputation sank in the uh, election with uh, uh, like, the great. hillary intervention in the campaign and everybody thought oh, we're so you know on the left we're so angry about hillary now he's revived that's <laughs> all good for the book so so let's uh, <laughs> jump over to my favorite 10 questions and uh, this is right, sort of speed a speed round. round. Yep. Okay. Um, tell us one important thing people don't know about your background. Oh, man. Um, well, uh, I have no education beyond college. I didn't right. study uh, law. I didn't study any finance. I didn't study accounting. I'm faking everything. Okay. That's reasonable. James Glick said something very similar. Every time he picks up a new subject, um, it's it, that's his education. He becomes educated enough to be able to ask questions. You must do something similar. Yeah, I'm very curious. By the way, the the best thing about this show is I've become an inveterate name dropper. Not on person, on <laughs> purpose, but it's like, well, when I was speaking to Jim Glick, he said, and I love his his if you haven't read the information, it's Oh, I should. Yeah, yeah. Astonishing. Um tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to research and writing. Huh, that's a good question. I, um, you know, I read the uh, the big books, the uh, big journalism books like um, Den of Thieves and Barbarians at the Gate. Um, that was uh, those were big influential books. I had um, a bunch of great uh, colleagues at thestreet.com where we really kind of learned finance and investing and um, investigations. Uh, Dave Kansas was the editor there. My colleagues like Colin Barr was an editor at mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal and Alex Berenson who went on to the New York Times and John Edwards is an, another editor at the Wall Street Journal. Um, bunch of really talented people there. Uh, so that uh, those were probably the early influences. And then uh, Larry Ingracia hired me at the Wall Street Journal. Um, he's one of the best editors of mm -hmm. our era. So uh, those guys all sort of help. My colleague, me. my colleague Josh Brown calls thestreet.com the unknown Motown of financial journalism. I'm so glad that he appreciates it because um, we really, it's all been lost to history. Um, but half uh, my columns from there are. are gone yeah I mean, i'm yeah, glad i grabbed him um, and put him we, on the blog you know uh and jim kramer um to his credit uh really kind of invented this whole kind of way of vernacular of speaking about mm -hmm. doing financial journalism but back then it was serious financial journalism we did an enormous number of real investigations deep reporting um it was innovative it was online we weren't pushing nobody had seen anything yeah. like it before it was totally snarky it was really yeah, unique yeah. uh I, it was a lot of fun uh, that's how I know Jesse long enough that we go back to that period. And full disclosure, if I, I have to mention this because if I don't, someone's going to send a, a nasty email. When Bailout Nation um, was in the fourth uh, editing, and I'm arguing with uh, McGraw-Hill over their S&P 500 division, I'm sorry, their Standard & Poor credit rating division, and they're not happy with the chapter that's critical of them, um, Jesse wrote a, a delightful 
column for Portfolio that pretty much set the tone for all the other coverage on the book, which was oh. um, Simon & Schuster, I'm sorry, McGraw-Hill drops book critical of S&P uh, credit division. And that really colored all of the subsequent coverage. And it ended up going to Wiley, and, and that transition just brought more attention to it. Oh, but, glad to help. Well, I, I have to say thank you, and I also I think I am obligated to disclose that. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, there's trouble. Well, Spy Magazine called this log rolling in the yes, time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> by the way, Den of Thieves, written by James Stewart, who's who's a legend. And then Barbarians at the Gate, was was that co-authored? Yeah, Brian Burrow and John Hellyer. Yep. And and also two two rock star um, journalists out there for yeah. do, doing God's work. Um, <laughs> talk about so so you mentioned a handful of mentors primarily. Um, Larry Grassi is legendary. Yeah, and lots of those folks at thestreet.com went to the Four Winds, and they're all running major. Uh, I think uh, the who is the C the head of. USA Today. There's like a whole. You could find people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Dave uh, Calloway. Dave Calloway. No, he wasn't there. But there was um, a guy. Uh, Dave Kansas was yeah. uh, um, who's was no the longer editor. with us. Uh, he is. He's, he's no longer in journalism. Mm -hmm. Or I don't know where Dave. I haven't. I've lost touch with him. But I'm sure I'm going to forget a million mentors. Of course. Of course. When you, um, when you do a list like this, but uh, um, he was one. Um, Let's talk about investors. What investors um, influenced your thinking about markets? Hmm. Um, well, uh, you know, it was interesting. The what happened to me was that uh, I was working for this obscure operation, thestreet.com. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's really talking to me. Um, and so I kind of naturally gravitated to the people who would talk to me. Sure. Um, the kind of desperate weirdos and quirks, uh, you know, cranks and uh um and outsiders and most of them were short sellers mm -hmm. um and so you know and, and, I, and in context this is the 90s right right and uh, the big bulls they have access to the new york times wall street journal cnbc they have access to all the regular media right and and the business journalism was, I would argue, even worse than it is today. And I don't think I don't have a great. Um, See, I think it's great, great today if you're selective. Um, That's a right. whole other discussion. You can find great journalism, but you know, overall, it's still too generous and too. Uh, there's too much happy talk, and there's uh, it's too adulatory. But uh, back then, it was even worse. Sturgeon's law applies to everything. Yes, so. that's true. But um, so, but so, so, um, so you know, so uh, and I always thought, you know, if a company is making money, uh, if a company develops its product, I was doing pharmaceuticals and biotech then. You know, if the comp companies, the covering. science works, covering. and uh, exact covering exactly. <laughs> Um, and uh, the science works, and the drug works, and um, they test it, and they get it approved by the FDA, and they sell it, and they make money on it. All those things are supposed to do those things. So that's not news. It's mm -hmm. only news when those right. things they don't do it. So I gravitated to when the drug was killing people, when they were lying about the drug's results, when they couldn't sell it, when they couldn't make money on it, and those were all stories to me. And the short sellers were the people I talked to, and so I learned. From from the best short sellers in the game. You Give know, us some Jim, examples. Well, Jim Chanos was one of them, although he didn't do as much biotech. Um, but there, you know, a lot of them were. Well, a lot of them. These guys are sort of out of the game. So, mm -hmm. like Dave Shally, 
um, is probably one of the best short sellers ever in the, and I hope that he forgives me for outing him, um, but now he's retired. Um, and uh, he worked for a, a, a shop on um, in California. Uh, and um, he, he's one of the guys who did the most work. They, he would been he probably would have been the best prosecutor in the Department really? of Justice. Drop him into the Department of Justice today, Just and he would be hands down mm-hmm. the best prosecutor. He was one of the most brilliant guys. Was he a and lawyer he also? With, no, no, he was just a sort of finance guy, but just a nose for frauds. And uh, um, he knows Mark Cahotis, who was a sure. big short seller. You guys know you had a partner who I won't name because he's still in the business. Um, uh, these guys were... Uh, these guys were the most influential. They taught me how to read a balance sheet, which I can do in a rudimentary fashion. They taught me how to look for frauds, um, identify them, and um, really, that was that was an incredible learning experience. And you know, the only reason they were talking to me is no one else would talk to them. Huh, I love that. Let's talk about books. You, you mentioned Den of Thieves and Barbarians at the Gates. Yeah. What are what are some of the books that? Are amongst your favorites, or that you found influential. By the way, fiction, nonfiction, finance—it doesn't matter. Yeah, I was trying to think about that earlier today. You know, I think that the um, one of the biggest influences that sort of had me on a path to journalism that I read in college was *A Bright Shining Lie* from Neil Sheehan, which mm-hmm. really exposed the government's lies during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't have any idea I wanted to be a journalist, but that's a piece of nonfiction journalism. It's brilliant, and it really it captures the Vietnam era almost better than any other book. Although um, there are a lot of classics from there, but I was I that I liked. I loved dispatches. I loved the journalism of Michael Hare. I loved the journalism of the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. So that was great. And then you know I gravitated to the great. Um, uh, essayists, polemicists like George Orwell and um, H.L. Mencken. Uh, those were the people that I read. I read Joan Didion. So I was sort of gravitating to this kind of nonfiction reportage. Mm-hmm. Um, those were so, kind of- so we all know Orwell wrote 1984, An yeah. Animal Farm. What Mencken piece uh, influenced you? Oh well, Mencken really does a lot of essays, mm-hmm. um, and so he's do, he's doing he's a critic. Really, he's doing essays. His collection of essays are there's no one sort of novel or one big book that uh, that he writes, but he's um, really kind of brilliant and lacerating and hilarious um, all at the um, same time. Yeah, and uh, coins a million words like the bourgeoisie. Um, so he's he's very entertaining. And Joan Didion, Joan Didion, uh, slouching to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Um, is a oh, that was great, a huge the book. white album um those are collections of essays she's a beautiful writer lucid um uh extraordinary observer of um of humanity just the kind of um the the perfect the best probably the best writer of uh in any journalism i mean i you know i liked a lot of new journalism so i read a lot of wolf uh, tom wolf and that kind of stuff so but i think she's probably the best of that era so since you've Join the industry. What do you think has changed? What's the most significant outside of the obvious uh, business model issue? The the biggest transformation in the business is the discipline um, and fear that executives have when they talk to journalists. So when I broke into the business in the early 1990s, I could call up a desk and talk to anybody on Wall Street. Really? Um, and I got a great education and found out a lot of the, what was going on. by ta- I covered IPOs and I talk, just called all the desks and talked to all the heads of the IPO operation. There was no PR involved. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And now if you call, and any sell-side analyst would, was desperate to talk, um, now if you call anyone, they understand that they can be fired for talking to you as a journalist. Really? Um, and they're so fearful for their jobs. And they're just, they, they're so loyal to their companies. I think it's, it's fear, but also this kind of loyalty that they, um, they, and disdain for the press. The press has really fallen in estimation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, the combination of that has resulted in this kind of PR grip on businesses that makes it so much more difficult. It's so much harder now to report on corporate America. Hmm. That That's shocking and fascinating. Um, what's the next positive shift you see coming? Um, in the business? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, well, I would say two things. One is what ProPublica is proving is that the nonprofit model for investigative journalism works. Mm -hmm. Um, When we started out, that was a question mark, whether there was going to be enough, uh, there were enough money and foundations and wealthy individuals to support this nonprofit. And I think nonprofit investigative journalism is not the solution to the journalism crisis where we don't hold the powerful accountable enough, but it is part of the solution. So I think that is the most powerful development that's happened over the last decade. And you it's said generated, I would just to point, it's sort of pulled a lot of people to realize that investigative journalism is incredibly important and mm-hmm. it's central to the mission of journalism. Journalism is not about selling clicks. So BuzzFeed has um, invested in investigative journalism and Washington Post has done more in investigative journalism. The New York Times, that's in part uh, um, because they're waking up to, they're reawakening to their mission. And I think ProPublica has contributed to that. What do you do outside of the office to relax? What do you do uh, to keep mentally and or physically fit? Oh, I, you know, I do a lot. My um, my work is not particularly all-consuming. Um, so I cook. I hang out with my children. I um, I listen to music. I'm trying to – I don't know a lot about classical music, but I'm starting to uh, listen to it. I, I'm always sort of learning. I like teaching myself the trees now, you know, trying to figure out what they are. So I walk around with a book. I'm I'm, I'm that guy in the park walking around with a little <laughs> tree book. I'm like I'm the most embarrassing dad you can imagine. That sounds pretty uh pretty amusing. Um, a millennial, someone just coming out of college, comes up to you and says, "Hey, I'm interested in a career in journalism. What sort of advice would you give them?" Go abroad, which mm-hmm. is what I did. Um, you, it's easier to find stories and they're more desperate for copy from there because um, there aren't, aren't that many. So, uh, and do what you like. Don't uh, do what you think you can make a living at. Um, gravitate to something you like and really understand it and develop it and the livelihood will follow. And our final question, what is it you know about Wall Street and journalism today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? That is a good question. Um, I think I I wish that I had been even more jaded about the <laughs> the systemic corruption um, that it exists in the system and the and the malign incentives. Um, you were I too optimistic. I that? was too. <laughs> I I thought that the corruption happened at the smaller companies or was an unusual thing. I think that the system is quite troubled and needs um, needs more vigilant oversight. We have been speaking to author and journalist Jesse Isinger. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast. 
Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal, and you can see any of the other 140-something such uh, previous podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank my technical producer, Medina Parwana, recording engineer par excellence. Taylor Riggs is our booker producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. If you enjoy this conversation... We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.